Welcome in, you knotheads. You've arrived in the nick of time. I'm your host, Nick Cormier, here to discuss with you the goings-on in pop culture, entertainment, television, film, current events, sports, you name it, we'll talk about it. Uh, In this week's episode, we're going to go ahead and chat about the Westworld Season 4 finale, a very controversial ending to Season 4, and potentially the series, spoiler alert. Then we'll go ahead and chat about an actual series finale, uh, Better Call Saul Season 6, the finale episode, Saul Gone, uh, and follow that up with a discussion about the new movie, film streaming on Hulu, Prey, the newest addition to the Predator series of films. Uh, Go ahead and stay tuned. Thanks for coming out to the Not Pod Gang. Yo, yo, what the, what the fuck, what the fuck, like, what the fuck, dude, what the fuck, what the fuck, like, what the fuck, I just spent the last hour of my life, after spending eight hours over the course of eight weeks watching season three of West, or sorry, season four of Westworld. So much fucking trash that I can't even remember what season we're in. Yo, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy, if you see me in the streets and I have fruit or vegetable on me, I'm fucking throwing it at you, bro. Like, Old school, 1920s, boo you off the stage. I'm throwing a fucking tomato at you, bro. Like, okay, let's talk about it, right? Let's talk about it. So first things first, I just finished the Westworld Season 4, Episode 8 finale. Okay, and I've already read news articles and podcasts where Lisa Joy Nolan, who married Jonathan Nolan, her co-writer on Westworld. She was Lisa Joy. Now she's Lisa Joy Nolan because you know how it is. You got to marry into the patriarchy. Jonathan Nolan only has a job because her brother wrote The Prestige and The Dark Knight and Batman and Inception and Interstellar. And if it weren't for his brother, Jonathan Nolan wouldn't have a motherfucking job in Hollywood. Period. End of story. Don't give a shit. No, I'm not talking shit. I'm talking facts. And if that hurts your goddamn soft-ass pussy feelings, then I'm sorry. You need to get a little bit of a thicker skin. But now that I've said those things, let's get on to the finale itself. Cool, so we arrive at this point where last episode we killed off Maeve, we killed off Bernard, both of whom were shot in the head, but their pearls couldn't be recovered and placed into new bodies because no reason, because Haloris, Charlotte Hale, her pearl is easily taken out of the skull where she took a bullet from the man in black, William, last week, and put into a new body, um, a more sturdy body so that she can fight William and the man in black so she knows she's going to do that and yet in their penultimate battle uh, at the Hoover Dam where the Sublime is being housed and the data is being stored uh, she brings a gun that has one clip in it her weapon is literally one gun with one clip and she's firing at the man in black and suddenly she's out of bullets like 
can we talk about the stupidest fucking writing of all time? Who wrote this? Did a 12-year-old write this? My daughter could have written this finale is how shittily it was written. Okay, cool. So then we have, uh, let's talk about Clementine. Clementine. She comes up to Heloris, who is in the basement, after she's locked out of her system, but she's able to access the system enough to find out where William's Man in Black host is so that she can sick the hosts that are in the nearby area on him. There's four hosts sicked on her, and yet only two show up to attempt to stop him. That's pretty interesting, I think, if you're a fucking moron. So, I can do math. Four people tracking William, minus the two he took out, leaves two still, right? Um, and they never show up, and they're, ne they're never relevant again. So, that's cool. Again, great writing. But anyway, back to Clementine, who comes up to Heloris and says, I was told that I was going to get freedom, and I was going to be able to do my own thing. And I would like to go and find the paradise where the outliers are all hiding. I would like to go to where all of the outliers who don't necessarily fit into our system and can't be controlled by our fly robots, I would like to know where they're going and go where they're going. So what does Clementine do? Oh, she doubles back into the city to try to kill Caleb and her daughter and his daughter Cookie um for no discernible reason. What the fuck are you doing? You are you are you are charged with writing and leading and directing and producing a multi-million dollar show. A show that at this point has cost over a billion dollars to produce. With huge cast names such as Anthony Hopkins, Evan Rachel Wood, um, fucking, uh, the guy who played Aaron Paul. You have Tessa Thompson. Like, I could go on because there's more high-paid actors in this. But it, uh, Scott Marsden, right? And they just, like... Don't know what the fuck they're doing. Thandy Newton. Uh, like, are you serious? Like, do you even know what you're doing? So, last week's episode, episode 7, I wanted to get on here and compliment. I wanted to get on here and rave about, but I was a little trepid, right? Because there hasn't been a renewal for season 5. And I thought to myself, man, it's kind of crazy how all these hosts are just getting knocked off. They're just killing a lot of characters and not leaving a lot of room for how they're going to come back in the next season. Um, turns out because there probably is no next season because they're so concerned with the fact that HBO Max is being taken over by Discovery, Warner Discovery, uh, and they haven't guaranteed a season five yet that they're literally going, huh, you know, what if this was just the end and we wrote a lazy... A contrived bullshit finale to this season. After we went out of our way really hard to do a good season, um, we're just going to end it like a giant piece of shit. Because that's what's happening here. It's like so frustrating. So, um, Christina is talking for like 10 to 15 minutes to Teddy in this episode. And she's not saying a lot. The whole thing is like, oh, I'm waking up and I made you up myself and this is all part of my inner monologue and you're like, you know, the bicameral mind and that's how I came to find you and I, and I made this symbol 
on my own balcony. I did it by myself, and it was me inside. It was me all along inside who was sending myself these messages that try to wake up Dolores. Wake up, Dolores. You're inside. It's always been you inside all along. So then Hale, for whatever reason, listens to Bernard's message and goes, you know what I got to do? I got to take Dolores's Pearl to the Sublime at the Hoover Dam, and I've got to install it there so that Dolores can enter the Sublime and Dolores can make the decision. After I've done everything in my power to say fuck Dolores and fuck humanity because they let my family die, and I don't understand. Um, it's the most retarded thing I've ever seen. I, I, oh my fucking God. Like, people thought the Westworld finale was really bad. And the joke is that it wasn't. Like, the joke is the Westworld finale, or I'm sorry, not Westworld, Game of Thrones, it was like, it was rushed, right? But it wasn't actually, like, contrived. And it wasn't a bad ending. It's like, it made sense. Like, Daenerys might go mad because the Targaryen lines have a, hist the bloodline has a history of going mad. And, like, there's a lot of issues with them. And there's an incestuous relationship between her and Jon Snow. And that's historically Targaryen and, like, all this stuff. But, like, if they had just had an additional season to flesh that out, then, like, that would have been a great ending. But the joke is they had to rush it and it didn't make much sense based on that because the Mad Queen, like, she became the Mad Queen too fast. But, like, ultimately... Compared to the Game of Thrones ending, this is so much worse. Because like I said, we spend all this time with Dolores, Christina, and she wakes up. And it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Because the world is over and humanity is mostly dead. And But it doesn't make a lot of sense what they're trying to do with Christina. And like, it doesn't make a lot of sense what they're trying to do with Dolores and what her point is. It doesn't make any sense why Hale would be interested in bringing back... Uh, Dolores's Dolores's Pearl to the Hoover Dam to put her in the Sublime. Doesn't make any sense why she would want to follow Bernard's plan. All Bernard says is, "This isn't the world that you intended, but it's the world you created." Like what? Like what? Deeper? There's nothing deeper than that. That's so surface level, superficial. I know that Bernard went in the Sublime and, like, did a million different simulations of what would happen in the real world if I did X and Y and Z, but, like, it doesn't make any sense. Clementine goes to kill Cookie and Caleb and ends up killing Stubbs, so we have Stubbs just die for no reason, um, like... It doesn't, it doesn't make any fucking sense. We have the man in black, William, ride to the Hoover Dam from New York on horseback. Hale gets in a fucking helicopter, a flying carriage, and somehow on horseback, even if it's a robot horseback, we're meant to believe that the man in black arrives at the same time as Hale. This woman doesn't bring any weapons for what she knows is a showdown with one of the most, like, ruthless... Heart, like hurtful most beast mode fucking characters in the entire west world vernacular he just she just doesn't prepare for that fight at all like literally she goes and sits by the river and decides to crush her own pearl after reinforcing her body like instead of putting herself into the sublime like what the actual fuck is the point of that like Okay, we're supposed to feel bad for you? You have a redemption arc? How does Haloras get a redemption arc after what she does to Caleb? After what she does to Maeve? After what she does to Burnt? Like, well, what she does to, men to William? I mean, William's not exactly a protagonist, right? 
from like she tortures him and leaves him as his like barely living lap dog nixon in a jar head in a jar status like how are we supposed to feel good about her how are we supposed to think that she's a redeemable character i don't understand like okay so let's get into it right lisa joy and jonathan nolan think to themselves gee I don't have a guaranteed fifth season, so I have to make this a backdoor series finale in case they don't renew my show. How about you just make a good fucking season of television and force them to renew your show? So when we were five and six episodes into this season, this season was really good. It was really interesting. It was very, very special compared to seasons two and three of Westworld, which weren't obviously as good as the original season of Westworld, right? So what do we do? We decide that we need to wrap things up too fast. We need to make things convoluted and write this shitty fucking ending. It doesn't make any sense. The entire season is a giant disservice to Thandie Newton and her character Maeve. Because after all is said and done, what did Maeve do this season? She got brought back to life after she was murdered. Her life was shortly lived thanks to Man in Black, Host in Black, Haloris in Black, right? And then... Then she's resurrected, only to die again, um, while fighting Haloris. What was the fucking point of Maeve this season? Like, seriously, most most ridiculous use of a brilliant character you've ever seen? I mean, quite possibly. We get Aaron Paul doing the only uh, great acting in the episode by saying, you know, it's great that I got to see you grown up because that's all a parent ever wants. Okay, cool. Like. Is that all a parent wants? Like, that's it? Game over? I'm just going to sit on this island now? Why not get on the boat and at least go die with your daughter? Why don't you try to, like, a a obtain fidelity, right? Oh, well, no human's mind ever takes. Okay, cool. Then what was the point of even trying? What is transcendence? Like, we never figure out what Hale's transcendence idea is. It's just left there like, oh, I'm trying to make people transcend. It's never fully fleshed out or explained. And it never will be. Why? Because Hale crushed her own fucking pearl for no reason after not being able to fight William because she didn't prepare for it because her helicopter goes as slow as a horse and she arrives at the Hoover Dam at the exact same time as William. Like, what the actual fuck? I'm so mad. I'm so mad because I've invested my time and energy into watching this show. And you can say, oh, well, you, could, you didn't have to watch her. Oh, you can watch her. Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Just shut the fuck up. Seriously. That's all stupid fucking lazy ass straw man argument, okay? Everybody watched season one of Westworld. It was a fucking hit. Like, uh, unlike the world has ever seen, or not unlike the world has ever seen, but like, un like the likes of which the world rarely sees, right? Was the season one of Westworld. And it was brilliant. And frankly, maybe this show needed more Anthony Hopkins and couldn't get by without it because that's, that's what it feels like to me is that Anthony Hopkins was pulling his damn weight too hard hard carrying this show but like really we have season one and then season two is pretty pretty bad compared to season one season three is really bad and i defended it so hard i went to the bat the plate so many times for season three saying listen guys it's a setup right we do season three and then we're gonna get a great season four leading into a season five and you know maybe lisa joy and jonathan nolan should have demanded a renewal on season four and five with a guaranteed end point before they began season four. Because what's the actual point of coming back from a really awful season three to only only 
to go ahead and give us a lackluster season four that doesn't really do justice to any of the characters, that doesn't provide a finish point. Oh, but Nick, but Nick, don't you see? Don't you see? The end of season four is a loop for season one. Oh, it's a loop for season... Get the fuck out of here. No, it's not a loop for season one. Season four doesn't end, and then you just get season one where the whole thing is some fidelity test for humanity. Like, shut the fuck up. That's not what happened. That's not what's happening. That's literally not what's happening. That's lazy and contrived, and you're just stealing a fucking ending from Stephen King's brilliant Dark Tower series. A brilliant story that hasn't been able to properly make the leap from book to to television or film why because it's such a brilliant story that uh producers uh writers and filmmakers don't actually understand the depths at which they would have to fucking translate this from the pages of the brilliant series onto the screen that's the truth oh but nick but nick it's just like the ending of dark tower he gets to the top of the tower and then the quest starts over no it's not actually it's not at all like that that's not what's fucking happening and the fact that you're accepting that is some kind of that means that you don't understand good storytelling if you really think that's what's happening because it's clearly not what's happening it's clear that there's supposed to be more story to be told here. It's clear that there were rewrites for the back half of this season because they were so afraid of cancellation that they rewrote the story because they're just leaving open hanging threads. Things are going nowhere that are supposed to go somewhere. Characters are getting killed off for no reason, like Stubbs in this episode. Okay, bye. And we're supposed to let that all get swept under the rug because William, who's played by Ed Harris, an excellent actor who delivers his character very well, all because he says fucking camper and we all laugh lol 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 ha, 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 ha. he said camper it's just like call of duty when the character sits in the back of your camp and he's camping and waiting for you to respawn and then he kills you he said camper y'all think that's funny oh man so funny camper camper oh you're camper shut the fuck up man i just spent I just spent eight hours over the past fucking eight weeks. That's a whole shift for most people. They work eight hours a day to get paid so that they can provide for their families and pay their bills. I just spent a whole ass shift. People get paid anywhere between a hundred and multiple hundred dollars, sometimes thousands of dollars for eight hour days. I just spent that over the past eight weeks to a show that didn't earn it and doesn't deserve it. And I'm really upset and angry about it. And... If Lisa Joy Nolan, who married Jonathan Nolan, thanks for that Hollywood nepotism, Jonathan Nolan, because your brother works in the industry, and now you get a writing credit, you get a chance to jump in the industry, and you're mad because a bunch of Redditors found out your fucking story plot, so you rewrote the entire season two because you're petty, because you're a petty person. Um, so now you're going to go ahead and rewrite the entire plot to season two, ruin your own show, write a shitty season three, short on episodes because you're short on anything creative. You can't figure out where you want to land this fucking plane and then get mad saying, oh, well, they didn't really uh, guarantee us a season five. So we didn't know how you're supposed to land this show. So we did a literal lazy job doing it, half-assed job landing it because we had to do a backdoor series finale. How about you do a fucking front door season two, three, and four, and then there's no worries about a cancellation. You're getting a season five, because if you don't rewrite all of season two, because you're bitter that Reddit discovered your theories, because they weren't that fucking creative, 
if a bunch of nerds on Reddit like myself can figure out what you're doing, then maybe, you know, you need to be a little bit more creative. Maybe you're not trying hard enough. Maybe you're not actually good at your job and you need to check yourself and ask if you're actually giving the effort that is necessary to be running a major television show, a prestige television show on the Sunday night slot on HBO Max HBO Now or Home Box Office Network to begin with. Maybe that's what you need to ask yourself. Westworld Season 1 is a piece of art. Westworld after Season 1 is a piece of shit. And Lisa Joy Nolan and Jonathan Nolan, her husband, should never be allowed to ever fucking helm another show on another streaming network again. I feel really bad for Amazon because I know they signed long-term deals with Amazon so they could create TV shows for that network. And I feel fucking awful for them because now they're stuck with this bullshit lazy writing team who has no fucking idea what they're doing. Yeah, I'm ranting. You know why I'm ranting? Because I'm disappointed. Why am I disappointed? Because I wasted my fucking time, I gave my energy, and I put my fucking feelings and spine behind a show that continued to disappoint season after season, and here we are again with a letdown in season four, and it's just fucking stupid. Lisa Joy Nolan, shut the fuck up. Jonathan Nolan, shut the fuck up. Westworld Season 4 is a big fat fucking F. F for failure and fuck up. And S in front of it. So it's SF for shut the fuck up. God damn it. I'm so angry. Okay, let's move on to something that I'm very excited to talk about, and that is uh, Better Call Saul, the season and series finale of Better Call Saul. The episode is titled, of course, Saul Gone. Um, now, this is one of the better episodes of Better Call Saul I've ever seen, and additionally, it's one of the finest series finales I've ever witnessed. You heard me right, and I don't lay that praise on easily. I don't give that out with regularity, and hopefully you guys are around to hear many more times where I will review a series finale or a season finale so you understand just how hypercritical I am about things of this nature. But when we talk about this episode of Better Call Saul, Saul Gone, the penultimate, or not penultimate, just the, old, the, the finale episode of this series... I want to talk about what is potentially uh, potentially the greatest finale I've ever seen in my life. The greatest series finale, the greatest ending to a story. Um, it is, without a shadow of a doubt, the best ending on television I've ever witnessed. So it's not even close. And I mean, eh, I've seen uh, endings that are very good. Uh, I've seen endings that are close to perfect, but I've never actually witnessed what I feel or would describe as a perfect ending. And with Saul gone, I am describing exactly that. So I'm going to take you through this finale episode note by note. Warning and spoilers. If you haven't seen the series finale of Better Call Saul, please switch off the podcast now. And I obviously don't want to be promoting people to not listen to the podcast. I'm very grateful for everybody that's a knothead coming out to listen to the Nick of Time podcast. However, 
I would be doing myself and all of you listeners a great disservice if I allowed you to spoil this finale without having seen the episode yourself first or the series. Now, if you're telling yourself you're never going to get around to it, you just know you're never going to be a Better Call Saul guy, you don't really care for Peter Gold and Vince Gilligan, uh, you're never going to be into the Breaking Bad universe, sure, go ahead and listen, because I'm going to tell you everything right right in a, in a neat little bun here. Um, so, we'll start with the beginning of the episode. Right in the beginning, we get flashback to earlier in the season. And Mike Trout and Saul are peddling Lalo's money um, through the desert, right? They almost died uh, transporting that money earlier in the season. They almost died. They were drinking their own piss to survive, right? And they finally find a water well, and Saul and Mike sit down, and they rest. And in that moment, Saul points out that they're sitting on $7 million. They're literally, not figuratively, sitting on $7 million in duffel bags, right? So Saul suggests that they get the hell out of there because $7 million is enough for two men to live for the rest of their lives. Mike is an honorable man, uh, honorable-ish anyway, honorable adjacent, let's say, right? And he says there will be people that will be mad about that. So Saul says uh, the first thing we do is take six of the $7 million, We we make a time machine, which is interesting because time machine is probably going to cost more than $6 million bucks, right? But anyway... That aside, he asked Mike, what would you do with it? And he says he would go back uh, to 1984 when he took his first bribe, when he basically corrupted himself, and he would uncorrupt himself. Then he would go into the future, and he would make sure the people he cares for are properly taken care of, because all the motivation that Mike Trout has throughout this show and Breaking Bad uh, is to take care of the widow of his dead son and their child, his grandchild, his granddaughter, right? So his motivations are very clear, and he obviously just wants to make sure that uh, he he made he did right by them and that they're okay once he's gone. Because Mike realizes he only has so much time left, especially in the business that he works in, right? So then he asks Saul what he would do and he says I'll go back to when Berkshire Hathaway was opened up in 1965 by Warren Buffett and I'll invest the million that I have left into that company my half a million rather after he splits it with Mike uh, and he'll be coming back to the future as a billionaire or a trillionaire to warrant to to be as rich as Warren Buffett okay uh, so Mike points out to him that's all there is to you is money there's nothing that you feel like you made a mistake about. And then Saul says, I'm ready, I'm rested, let's get out of here. Because he doesn't want to talk about the mistakes he's made. He isn't ready to admit the error in his ways at this point. So they get a move on and head out of the desert. So the next scene, we flash back to the future. Of course, post-Breaking Bad and El Camino storylines. Gene Takovic uh, was just ratted on at the end of the last episode. Marion figured out who he was using the internet, the YouTube that uh, Gene taught her how to use. And now Gene Takovic has gone back to his house to get his money that he's been storing, his diamonds, and he's on the run from the law because they know where he is and they know that he saw Goodman and he's running from the police now. Um, by the end of the episode, of course, or I'm sorry, by the end of the scene, he's, of course, captured by the police inside of a dumpster. Uh, and then he goes to jail, in which case he calls the Cinnabon management to let them know that he won't be making it into work today and that his co-workers should leave the shift without him. He then is inside of his jail cell, cursing himself for his um, 
his weakness for why he did what he did because he got himself caught by taking too long in the house, obviously. So, flash forward where he starts to maniacally laugh, uh, and then he sees something on the, on the sprawled on the wall. Somebody had engraved in the in the brick cell, "My lawyer will ream your ass." So he starts to laugh, realizing that you know he might be Gene Takovic in this moment, but he can call on the powers of Saul Goodman to potentially get him out of the position that he's in, right? He has Saul Goodman within him. He can lawyer with the best of them. So realistically, all hope is not lost for Gene yet, right? He's going to make a phone call. Uh, He gets himself a lawyer, a character from the past. I won't really let that get out there. Um, But then they go and they they are making a deal, or trying rather, to talk with the assistant uh, district attorney for the, the U.S. Attorney General, right? And Maurice Schrader, Hank Schrader from Breaking Bad fame, his wife, rather his widow, is there to talk to Saul Goodman. And Saul says, bring her face to face with me. In which case, Saul goes about a story uh, telling how he was held at gunpoint. He was afraid of Walter White, how he was a victim. In this scenario, just as much as the late Hank Schrader and so many other victims of Walter White were, uh, of Walter White and Jesse Pinkman's uh, meth-filled rampage, uh, their drug empire, right? So the Attorney General says to Saul, you think you're really going to get a jury of peers to believe that? And then Saul says, tactfully, might I add, one, I just need one. I need one to believe that, and I think I can do just that. I can get one person to believe that story, uh, and then you won't be able to convict me. So suddenly they want to make a deal. Uh, they were going from 190 years uh, and all kinds of felonies down to seven and a half years is where Saul gets it eventually, right? Right before he's done, though, he wants to sweeten the pot, get himself a little bit more ice cream, uh, mint ice cream while he's in jail to be given to him weekly. Uh, and he tries to go ahead and give up the story on Howard Hamlin uh, and what happened with uh, his death, his untimely death at the hands of of uh, Lalo, uh, Salamanca. And, of course, that's when he finds out his good old ex-wife, Kim Wexler, already let the cat out of the bag by going to the widowed Mrs. Hamlin uh, and telling her everything in an affidavit that she signed regarding her involvement in in Lalo Salamanca's murder of Howard Hamlin. So they don't, you know, give him any more sweetener on the pot. But now Saul's left to wonder... Uh, what's going on with Kim and what potentially she might be facing as retribution for the admittance of her actions and her parts in, in events. So while on the plane, you can see that um, that Saul is thinking about things and potentially wondering what could happen there. Meanwhile, we get a flashback to Walter White and Saul Goodman in the basement of the vacuum repairman, who's uh, the one who escapes them away from the dangers at the end of Breaking Bad, right? He's the one that relocates them. And um, unfortunately, he's passed away, so he's not going to make an appearance in the episode. R.I.P., of course, to that actor. He was great. Um, I can't remember his name for the life of me right now, but he appeared in many things, not just, of course, the Breaking Bad universe. Anyhow, that's uh, much ado about nothing. Let's talk more about this flashback scene with Walter White, played by Brian Cranston. He's annoyed by a leaky a leaky heating water heater uh and Saul doesn't care at all but he can't help himself but try to fix the leaky water heater so it's a callback you know to uh the fly in the lab he just can't let things be when he knows he can fix them 
Uh, why fix later what you can fix now? Good old Walter White, right? It was good seeing him again. Good seeing Brian Cranston. Really crushed the role and playing Walter White just as we remembered him during that time period as well. Really called himself back into that state of mind when he was frantically worried about his escape from uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. So Saul asks him, what would you do with a time machine? Same thing he asks uh, Mike Ehrman Trout in the beginning of the episode, right? And Walter White says, you're talking about uh, relative physics with me right now? What are we really talking about? And of course, Walter White cuts to the heart of it and says, regrets. Uh, and Walter White, you know, doesn't have many regrets, but he does uh, look down at something that reminds himself of Jesse Pinkman. Uh, and probably regretting, rightfully so, regretting what happened with Jesse Pinkman uh, at the end of Ozymandias, the episode where Jesse Pinkman was taken by the white supremacists and turned into their meth slave, right? Um, and the fact, of course, that he allowed his girlfriend, Jesse Pinkman's girlfriend, uh, played by uh, Kristen... Uh, oh, crap. The name evades me right now, but the one who was a star of Jessica Jones, uh, Kristen Ritter played by Kristen Ritter, allowed her to overdose and die uh, in her own bile in the bed with Jesse one night, right? With Jesse Pinkman. So he obviously regrets that. Um, but, of course, Walter White's being Walter White, and we can't get to the bottom of, uh, of anything with him. So he asks, you know, Saul, Saul Goodman, what, what do you regret? What would you go back to? And he says, I regret being Slippin' Jimmy because uh, that was what put me through bar, uh, the bar. Uh, exam and he goes you were always like this you were always like this just like kind of like Mike Ehrman Trout earlier says in the episode that's all there is is money huh that's all there is because Saul Goodman is uh it's really a broken character and that's what this episode's going out of its way to show you but we'll get back to that in, uh, in a bit uh anyway the next thing that happens in the episode he gets on the plane asks about Kim uh, tells him that he has some juice on Kim. Kim's going to the legal aid office down in Florida and starting to get back into law, it turns like, now that she's uh, kind of aired herself out to the the widow of, of, of Howard Hamlin. She's starting to get ready to go back into law, but gets the call that she's going to be brought up in the Saul Goodman case, uh, the state of New Mexico versus Saul Goodman. So we get to the court scene, and what is one of the most brilliant scenes I've ever seen uh, occurs next. Saul Goodman gets up there, and instead of accepting his seven-and-a-half-year plea agreement, uh, he instead begins to confess with Kim in the room, confesses that Kim was only brought there because he lied about her involvement in the murder of Howard Hamlin, and the only thing that Saul Goodman intended to do by bringing her there was show her that he was going to perform a complete mea culpa and take culpability for all of his actions. Admitted that he was responsible for the rise of Walter White, for the deaths of all of Walter White's victims by virtue of having gotten him out of jail, kept him out of jail, kept him out of trouble, promoted him in the meth game, uh, in the drug in the drug game, essentially taking responsibility for all of his actions, the death of Howard, uh, the suicide of his brother Chuck, um, just everything that he'd ever done wrong. He kind of comes clean about it in the process, of course, throwing himself under the bus. He's literally sending himself to jail for the rest of his life with this. But what he's come to realize and what the flashbacks are about with Walter White and with Mike Ehrmantraut are going to the point that he doesn't 
have a life worth living. He calls the Cinnabon management when he's in jail because there's no one else that he can call. There's no one that cares. Saul Goodman has no friends. Gene Takovic has no friends. Jimmy McGill was the one who had Chuck McGill for a brother. Jimmy McGill was the one that had Kim Wexler for a wife. I mean, the the judge was going to follow the regulations, uh, the guidelines for sentencing because that's what she notoriously did. Even though she didn't like the guidelines and the, the, the deal that was going to be accepted for Saul Goodman, she would have followed that. But instead, he literally falls on the sword in front of Kim Wexler in an amazing, astounding moment of beauty, poetic beauty, that he should basically go back from Gene Takovic into Saul Goodman, but then recognize in a time intermittent between that moment and the trial, his arrest and the trial, that Saul Goodman was just as big a piece of shit and worthless as Gene Takovic. And ultimately, it would be much better to gain Kim's forgiveness for everything that had occurred and become Jimmy McGill once again, rather than live on to fight another day as a worthless scumbag like Saul Goodman. And there's just something so incredibly satisfying and poetic about that that I can't really get over just how beautiful this this scene is. He talks about Chuck, cries a little bit, starts to tear up about Howard a little bit about it. We get a flashback scene to Chuck, where Chuck, of course, at the end of the episode is reading H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, and one of the best books ever written, uh, referenced several times in this episode during the talks with Mike Ehrmantraut and Walter White. Uh, the Time Machine is brilliant storytelling at its finest, and um, and we get a, a good measure of it here in Saul Goodman's final episode, Saul Gone, because that's what's happened. He is gone. Saul Goodman is gone forever. Better Call Saul? Well, no, you don't. So he gets on the prison bus. All the prisoners know him as Better Call Saul, uh, and they all start to kind of adore him, meaning that uh, no matter how much they try because the da does send him to the worst the worst uh the alcatraz of the rockies they call it the worst prison in the area um you know all the prisoners respect saul goodman he got a lot of dirt bags off so he's got a reputation and he's gonna be able to ride that in prison so he's not gonna be so bad off kim's bar card apparently never expires so she's able to visit um when he's she's able to visit jimmy whenever she chooses there's a beautiful scene here at the end where Kim does visit him in jail uh, and they share a cigarette because she's become Jimmy's lawyer. Uh, and it, it harkens back to an early scene in season one when we're introduced to the pairing of Jimmy and Kim uh, and they're smoking a cigarette together in one of the rooms in uh, Hamlin, Hamlin and McGill or, or Hamlin, HHM, right? So, uh, you know, Kim has forgiven, clearly forgiven Jimmy for his misgivings, his misdeeds. Uh, the love is still there between them very clearly. I mean, Jimmy's going to be in jail for the rest of his life. So the only place that Kim's ever going to see him is when visiting him in jail. Uh, he'll be lucky to, you know, you know, he'll be lucky to ever be uh, intimate with, with her again. But, uh, even just being able to share a cigarette with her is just like this completely poetic moment and scene. There's so much catharsis in this episode. Um, you never would have expected uh, Saul Goodman to be dead, Gene Takovic to be dead in the same episode. No kidding. He's back to Jimmy McGill for the first time in what feels like maybe uh, five to ten years. He's been Saul Goodman for so long now, on the run now. Uh, and it's just so cathartic to have him be able to give up the worst parts of himself. As human beings, 
it's like we have this issue it's called the sunk cost fallacy right it's when you've paid the cost for something over such a long period of time giving giving it up feels so difficult because you don't feel like you're just giving something up it doesn't just come off as an admittance of wrongdoing or being incorrect it's also a measure of giving up one's time giving up oneself um so the sunken cost fallacy is difficult to defeat and in this episode Jimmy McGill is able to defeat the sunk cost fallacy that ultimately he admits he was wrong. He made too many bad decisions, let him down a dark road. But at the end of the day, the weight lifted off his shoulder is just so much more valuable to him than his own freedom. Like that speaks volumes. That's such a human. That's such a crazy human story to be telling. And it's why Better Call Saul uh, the finale that's all gone here is the best series finale I've ever seen. And I'm not being a prisoner of the moment. I'm just being honest. Vince Gilligan, Peter Gold did an amazing job uh, with this show, with this finale. Period. End of story. I can't believe they landed this plane the way they did. A lot of shows wish they could land seasons, wish they could land series the way this series did. Uh, and they're just not as tactful, not as brilliant as uh, Vince Gilligan and Peter Gold. The episode ends, of course, with with uh, Jimmy McGill in the yard giving the finger guns to Kim. Kim, who used to give the finger guns to him, uh, you know, as a sign of affection between the two. But, of course, you know, things will never be the same. Uh, I will miss this show immensely. And at a later date, you can expect an episode where I compare uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul amongst a couple of other top-tier shows. Uh, as we discuss the greatest show of all time. So look forward to that in the future of the podcast. Uh, But for now, if you haven't, go out and watch Better Call Saul. It's on Netflix. You can catch the first couple of seasons there. AMC Plus, I believe, is where the newest season resides. Uh, you got to check it out. It's, It's possibly better than Breaking Bad. And I never thought when I started this show that I'd believe that that I'd be saying that, but now I'm saying with my full heart uh, and with a heavy, heavy heart uh, that this show may have somehow surpassed its predecessor, which is absurd because how often does a sequel or a prequel ever come off as good as the original? Almost never. And not only were they able to do that with Better Call Saul, but they may have done it better. Unbelievable uh, top-notch, Bob Odenkirk, uh, Rhea, Rhea Seahorn. Uh, you guys, like, this is eternal. This is an eternal piece of art. Okay, let's talk about Prey really briefly. Uh, last segment of the show, uh, I did want to make sure. I gave all the meat and put all the meat on the bone into the tummy. I want to make sure everybody's got enough to digest. You've heard me rant about Westworld today. You've heard me, uh, you know, swoon over Better Call Saul today. So as a little bit of a palate cleanser from all of that up and down roller coaster, I'm just going to talk to you a little bit about the movie that came out on Hulu this past week. It's called Prey. Of course, it is in the vein of the Predator series. It's Predator-based film. Uh, You know, you have a Native American film. Uh, woman as the lead here I don't know uh, how many are familiar with Amber uh, Mid Thunder Mid uh, Heard Thunder 
Yeah, Mid-Thunder is her name, right? Because I saw her in Legion before. She played a really cool character on Legion who was always, you know, kung fu fighting people. Just beating the crap out of people. Um, uh, Legion is a great show on FX if you haven't seen it, by the way. It's only three seasons long. Got cut maybe a season before its time. But it's by Noah Hawley of the uh, Fargo fame. So go ahead and check that out if you haven't already. But Amber Mid-Thunder starring as a Native American woman who's trying to hunt... Uh, and prove that as a female, she can do just as much as the males can do. Um, you know, kind of that female empowerment vibe is like one of the themes of the film. Uh, so she's hunting with her dog, uh, and and the predator shows up, uh, and she sees it in the sky, or at least the ship, rather, and the technolo- technology that, of course, she's unfamiliar with living in the early 1700s. Um, but... Anyhow, she respects, mistakes it, rather, for the Thunder God. Uh, and then later in the film, as she's fighting a bear that they're tracking, uh, the Predator shows itself to her, covered in the bear's blood, and a, uh, a, a battle for her life ensues as she runs from the Predator and tries to warn her brothers who are tracking her to take her back to camp, or rather, back to the tribe. Uh, that there is a, a mysterious monster following her. Of course, they don't believe her until some of them start to be, you know, executed in a rather grisly fashion, of course. All the while, she's attempting to fight it back because that's the kind of badass that Amber Midthunder is in this film, is she's constantly trying to fight this thing despite people telling her that she shouldn't be. Um, so anyhow, they're running from the Predator. Uh, her brother unfortunately gets killed she gets captured by some colonialists some french well i guess they're not colonialists really they're frenchmen there's french foreigners in her land uh and they have a translator who speaks her language but she still refuses to deal with or listen to any of them until uh later after they try to ambush the predator and they subsequently get completely beaten about and bullied by a predator they have Guns, so they have fire sticks uh, that, of course, Amber Midthunder's character is completely unfamiliar with. And uh, they are not able to take down the Predator despite their best attempts. They do a good job hurting him and making it bleed uh, with their various traps and odds and ends. But they're not able to get any clean shots on it, take it down. Uh, the Predator is destroying them one by one systemically uh, and is, is unencumbered. Uh, against their weapons because of course the technology of the predator is much much better than the uh, the pistols of the early 1700s so later you get a fight between uh, Amber Mid Thunder and the predator to be in the finale of the film Amber Mid Thunder's character lures the predator out using uh, a Frenchman as bait uh, and lures him into the swamp figures out that his helmet has a tracker on it to where the arrows uh, the bolts that the Predator shoots out always go to. So, uh, is able to remove the helmet, knock the helmet off of the Predator, hide it between the rocks, lure him into the swamp, where, uh, or rather the quicksand, where he won't be able to move freely. Uh, his ambulation is cut off. And then has him attempt to fire his bolts from his wrist at Amber Mid Thunder. Of course, he doesn't know where his mask is. Uh, he'd forgotten himself for that moment, or himself for herself. Not sure that we know the gender of the Predator in this case, and I'm really not into uh, worrying about the pronouns. I really hate having to worry about pronouns. Not not one of my favorite topics. 
Um, so anyhow, uh, the, the, the mask is pointed at the predator inside of the quicksand. So when firing those bolts from the wrist, the wrist rocket, we'll call it, uh, the bolts do a big fat circle right before they come directly through the head uh, and complete a headshot of the Predator, uh, killing it, incapacitating it, so that Amber Midthunder's character can completely decapitate it and bring it back to her people to show that even without her brother and uh, the other warriors that were killed that day, uh, Amber Midthunder can be trusted as the chief warrior of the tribe, even as a girl. Um, when they just want her to do medicine, they want her to be a tribal medicine woman. She's very good with her medicine, knows her herbs, uh, but at the end of the day also has wishes and wants, and that is to be a warrior and a hunter, not a medicine woman or a gatherer. So that's a, that's a brief synopsis of the film, Prey. What I will say is you're not seeing how the cinematography is very wonderfully done. Uh, seeing all of the forest scenes uh, and the scenes where Amber Midthunder and her her tribe are hunting through the forest. Uh, it's very wonderful. The CGI that they use is very well done. The Predator apparently is a practical effect. So they, they have this person in complete body makeup. And, and that's amazing because it makes it so much more realistic, which explains why... Uh, aesthetically speaking, it's a very, it's a very beautiful and visually appealing film. Um, I didn't think coming into this I was gonna enjoy it as much as I did, uh, but Prey was actually excellent, well done all around. Not a lot of complaints about the writing, uh, about the plot, about the pacing. Uh, I would just say that overall it was just incredibly well done. Uh, a predator comes to Earth in classic fashion, is hunting the skulls. Uh, various other predators uh, and doing generally just predator things if I'm being honest this might be the best predator movie I've ever seen uh, I've seen all the predators and uh, this might be the best one if I was rating this movie on a scale of 1 to 10 like I do rate most movies I'd give it a hard 9 it's a very good film for what it is uh, could have been longer it's only it comes in at a smooth like hour and 25 minutes maybe hour and 30 minutes uh, so a nice 90-minute runtime, but there ain't nothing wrong with a film with 90-minute runtime. Probably to get to a perfect film, I, I would have liked uh, maybe an hour and 45 minutes, like if they could have found an extra 15 minutes or something to do. Maybe uh, Amber Midthunder uh, struggling against perhaps the French uh, invaders with the guns. Obviously, they might just shoot her at that point, but she's a girl, so... If the idea of this film, uh, one of the main themes behind it is, uh, you know, uh, underestimating uh, feminine power, girl power, then uh, potentially the French would have had the same problem that the, the lady chieftains and the chiefs of her own tribe were having, right? So, I think that overall, it was a great movie. Probably one of the best movies I've seen all year. Def definitely one of the best movies I've seen all year. Uh, and I would recommend anybody who's got access to Hulu to go ahead and stream that thing because... We got to, you know, great filmmaking needs to be rewarded. And the only way to do that right now is with your streaming because you can't go to the film. You can't see the film in theaters uh, and vote with your wallet. So in this case, uh, vote with your view time and spend the 90 minutes watching Prey on Hulu. 